Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 197 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is both the queen of hip-hop soul and a breakthrough actress. On the music side of things, her first album was released 25 years ago, and she's since released 12 others en route to nine Grammys, encompassing R&B, rap, pop, and gospel songs. She's been chosen as one of the 100 greatest singers of all time by both Rolling Stone and VH1, and she was honored with the Icon Award at the 2017 Billboard Women in Music Awards. Meanwhile, on the acting side, she's been popping up on screens big and small for 18 years, in projects like the 2012 movie Rock of Ages, the 2013 TV movie Betty and Coretta, and the 2015 TV special The Wiz Live. But never has she received as much acclaim for acting as she did for her portrayal of a 1940s wife and mother on a plantation in Mississippi in Dee Reese's Mudbound, which is streaming on Netflix and to which she also contributed the song that plays over its end credits, Mighty River. For her performance, she was nominated for the Best Breakthrough Actor Gotham Award, won the Best Breakthrough Actor Hollywood Film Award, and has pending Best Supporting Actress Golden Globe, SAG, and Critics' Choice Award nominations as well. For Mighty River, she received a second Golden Globe nomination, making her only the seventh person in history to snag Globe noms for both a performance and a song in the same year. And she could easily muster the same feat again in a few weeks when the Oscar nominations are announced. In case you haven't figured it out yet, I'm talking about the great Ms. Mary J. Blige. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by the smartest film guy I know, Tom Doherty, a cultural historian who is a professor of American studies at Brandeis University, where he also chairs that department. Doherty got his B.A. at Gonzaga University, and then, after spending two years in the Peace Corps in South Korea, both his M.A. and Ph.D. at the University of Iowa. In 1990, following a brief stint teaching at Boston University, he moved over to Brandeis, where he has been ever since, and where I was lucky enough to study under him. That wasn't by accident. I actually sat in on one of his classes on Accepted Students Day when I was still debating which college to attend, and by the time his class was over, so were my deliberations. Doherty also has been a Directors Guild of America fellow and an Academy Film Scholar, has taught in South Korea, New Zealand, and Albania as a Fulbright Scholar, and currently serves on the editorial board of Cineast Magazine and edits the film review section for the Journal of American History. He is also the author of six wonderful books on film, 1999's Pre-Code Hollywood, Sex and Morality and Insurrection in American Cinema, 1930-1934, 1999's Projections of War, Hollywood, American Culture, and World War II, 2002's Teenagers and Teen Picks, Juvenilization of American Movies, 2003's Cold War, Cool Medium, Television, McCarthyism, and American Culture, 2007's Hollywood Censor, Joseph I. Breen and the Production Code Administration, 2015's Hollywood and Hitler, 1933-1939, And his seventh book, Show Trial, Hollywood, HUAC, and the Birth of the Blacklist, is due out on April 10th. I'm so glad that we were able to grab him while he and his wife are out west to attend the Palm Springs International Film Festival. Professor Doherty, my teacher, my mentor, and my friend, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Scott, really. So I want to ask you a question that I never really asked you before. I never got to ask you when I was in your classroom, never since. And that is, how did you first fall in love with the movies? I know you were... 
an Air Force brat, and I think that had something to do with it. Yeah, I was an Air Force brat, and my dad was stationed north of Fairbanks, Alaska, in a place called Isleson Air Force Base. And uh, this is in the late 60s. And it was probably one of the few remaining provinces of something that was kind of like the way people went to the movies in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There was one base theater, kind of like a neighborhood theater, and they changed the shows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then they'd have a bigger movie on Friday and Saturday. They actually had kitty matinees and newsreels, which was you know, a kind of a dead exhibition strategy in uh, what we call the lower 48. And you could walk to the base theater. So I didn't have to rely on mom and dad to, you know, drive me to the, to, to the mall or downtown the way uh, uh, kids elsewhere would. And when you're 11 and 12, you could sort of ask a girl out to a movie. <laughs> and so movies always had this this kind of a romantic allure to me. And, and especially in the winter, there was uh, nothing else to do right, except go to the movies. Right. And I think that's where I first developed my love for a cinema on the big screen, and especially the Hollywood tradition. And how far along the line were you when you realized this might be something you could make the center of a career and, and in terms of academia? It, yeah, well, you know, I don't know if I thought about it in, in quite those premeditated <laughs> terms, but, you know, I, I, as you mentioned, I was in the Peace Corps. And when you're overseas, you start looking at America from outside the fish tank. And I became fascinated by American culture. And if you're into American culture, you kind of move into movies and popular entertainment. And uh, when I was at the University of Iowa in the late 70s, they had a remarkable repertory theater, a kind of a a dead practice now, unfortunately, where you know, generations of film scholars got their first education because no matter where you were, and especially if you were in the Big Ten schools in the Midwest and uh, what people jokingly call a flyover country, uh, you were getting the best prints of you know, Fassbender or Herzog or the French New Wave and repertory Hollywood cinema because there were non-theatrical 16 and 35 millimeter prints. So you could see you know, two or three film noirs in Iowa City, Iowa on a Monday and Tuesday night. So you really got a good film education. So whether you were in American studies or film or English or you know, romance and comparative literature, everybody kind of congregated around the repertory theaters. So I guess this is a, a good time to ask you, what is American studies and why did you get into that as opposed to something that more people are familiar with, whether it is actually... You know, I guess I don't know if, if film was offered as a major or things like that, but why American studies? Well, um, uh, you know, American studies, I always loosely define it for my students as uh, sort of uh, any study of things American. And in a, an American studies class, you might end up uh, studying, say, a Puritan sermon from the 17th century or last weekend's blockbuster hit. And I always found film, you know, American studies, the best place to look at film, both culturally and aesthetically. Because if you were in film, you did the aesthetics really well, but maybe not the culture and history too well. And if you were an historian, you sort of looked at film as a filmed editorial. And I think to really examine film critically, you sort of need both skill sets to see the way cinematic grammar informs ideological meaning, but then have a great sense of uh, the, the film in its cultural historical context. I always tell my students that, you know, for the study of a film, the most important thing is to look at the date. So if you're looking at Casablanca, 1942, you can obviously see it as a great window into the, the values of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I remember, I think it was first pointed out to me in one of your classes that when that movie came into theaters, Rick's sacrifice at the end was all the more poignant because we didn't know that how the war was going to turn out. Yeah, right. And and also Hollywood had led us to believe that the best thing that could ever happen in your life was for the alpha male and the alpha female to get together at the end. Yeah. And this film tells you something else that the 
the problems of three little people aren't worth a hill of beans <laughs> in this crazy world, right. and that the greater cause is the fight against fascism. And of course, they do it in this wonderful, you know, Hollywood way that's you know so generically perfect and. You know, the Hollywood propaganda was so much better than anything the Nazis or the Russians uh, were doing because you sort of had this wonderful Hollywood toolbox that could communicate these values in a way that was, you know, dramatically persuasive. So you're visiting Hollywood now at a very interesting time during what we've been referring to on this podcast as the Weinstein Spring because (laughs) the exposure of Harvey Weinstein's sexual misconduct and his subsequent very rapid downfall started a series of events that have reverberated throughout this town and obviously now around the world. The last time Hollywood was at the center of so many disturbing stories, when much of the country thought it was a den of iniquity, I think Mm -hmm. is a phrase that was used, was I think in the 20s and early 30s, which is a period you've really studied and written about, when a series of scandals got massive media coverage. We had names like Fatty Arbuckle and William Desmond Taylor and Wallace Reed and Thomas Ince and Paul Byrne and on and on and on. So based on history and how that era was handled by Hollywood, which again sort of tees up a a book that you've written in an area of expertise of yours, how do you think Hollywood will respond to this crisis beyond what it's already done, which involves fellow Brandesian Anita Hill and Mm -hmm. some other things like that? So basically just what happened the last time we were in a, a sort of similar situation with all hell breaking loose in this town and people needing to come up with a response. You mean like in the 20s yes. and the 1930s is, well, what they did is they formed a production code administration that would regulate the values of Hollywood movies and sort of make the industry, rather than you know the Sodom on the Pacific, which is what it was being configured as, into something that promulgated you know in the minds of uh, the censors uh, better American values. But the, people don't yeah. necessarily realize this, the production code, the, which eventually morphs into the MPAA, this was not imposed on Hollywood. This was the studio chiefs figuring, let's get ahead of the problem and impose it on ourselves, right? Exactly. Where where most nations had a federal censorship board by law, under law. America didn't go that way, and it could have with the motion pictures, but the moguls decided it would be much more cost-efficient to have an in-house censorship agency, which was the Production Code Administration, to do censorship at the source. It'd be more efficient. You wouldn't have uh, these uh, state boards cutting up your films. So do it in Hollywood with this one guy, Joseph I. Breen, who, as you know, I think is probably one of the most influential filmmakers, if you will, in American history. He had final cut over more movies than anybody <laughs> in history, you know, from 1934 right. to 1954, you didn't get out of Hollywood with your movie unless the Breen office vetted it for uh, morality. So that was sort of an ingenious way to get around federal censorship and make your product not this infection that would uh, corrupt American culture, but something that would actually affirm America's best sense of itself. And of course, the racket worked perfectly for the next 20, 25 years until in the 1960s, TV threatens Hollywood, so they have to move into territory that they had rejected before. So that was just a reassuring thing for people around the country who thought that Hollywood is running wild and it's going to seep into the minds of our children, these Mm -hmm. bad values. Do you see any form of that recurring, perhaps, in response to what's happening now? Is there well, something they can do now? Well, the, the, the one way that it's similar to both what happened in the early 30s and in the late 40s with the House on american Activities Committee is that 
Hollywood is kind of the place we go to when we want to debate all kinds of ideological or sensitive issues. And whether it's communism or sexual morality, or in this case, sexual harassment and actual rape, we go to Hollywood. And that's, you know, these things are happening in, you know, the restaurant industry and uh, education, you name it. But it might fall under the life is not fair file, which is that, uh, you know, glamorous stars are all and their work is always going to get more attention mm-hmm. than other kinds of occupations. So when we look at the blacklist, we tend not to think about people being blacklisted from the military or mm-hmm. from middle schools, but we tend to think of it in terms of the actors and the directors and Although screenwriters. Although happening yeah, in those yeah, other it's happening areas. everywhere, yeah. but we don't know those names, right. and those stories don't get told again and again the way the uh, the Hollywood blacklist story gets, uh, Just gets to told. put a bow yeah. on the Harvey Weinstein thing, yeah. it's kind of ironic that one of the ways in which he became a a master at getting a disproportionate amount of attention for his small movies over the years was always picking fights with the MPAA. So he would get a movie that probably justifiably be rated NC-17 and make a stink of it dating back to the very beginning of Merrimax through the end of, of the Weinstein Company, basically. And even though, you know, maybe it would get overturned, usually not, but at least he would get a lot of free publicity. So Harvey Weinstein and the effects of Joseph Ibreen do actually, in a weird way, sort of overlap. But I want to ask you, how did censorship and Joseph Breen first cross your radar and as something you wanted to study? And then also, you've written a number of books about that deal with Jews, Germans, and the Holocaust. Why are those subjects of particular interest to this Irish Catholic guy sitting across from me. Well, you know, the great thing about Hollywood is it appeals to to everybody, and it's sometimes glibly referred to as a Jewish-owned business selling Roman Catholic (laughs) theology to Protestant America. And that ecumenical spirit is, I think, why Hollywood is so successful. And just in terms of my own interest, uh, I started doing research for a dissertation, and I wasn't into high film theory, which was really the big thing there, Lacan, Foucault. I mean, I couldn't understand those people and wasn't interested in them anyway. But I was really interested in the history of Hollywood. And I found the best place to go were the trade journals of Variety, Daily Variety, Motion Picture Herald, and of course, The Hollywood Reporter. And when you read those journals, you get a different sense of what's going on in the industry than some of the film the film histories and how people respond to things at the time. And I kept running across this name, Joe Breen. <laughs> and like he was a huge character in classical Hollywood cinema. And he's one of these people that's forgotten. And, and, and I remember when I talked to Martin Quigley Jr., who's since passed away, who was the son of Martin Quigley, who co-wrote the production code and edited, published Motion Picture Herald. He was like, you know, you film scholars are finally figuring this out, you idiots. <laughs> and he said to me, kid, and I was like 40 at the time, kid, <laughs> Breen was one of the most influential people in the history of Hollywood. Everybody in the town had enormous respect for him. He was very powerful. He was at least as powerful as Louis B. Mayer. And that, you know, when you hear that, you think, wow, you know, I've heard of Louis B. Mayer, but I hadn't heard of Joseph Breen. And the more you look into it, and Jack Valenti, very generously in the 1980s, opened up the MPAA archives to anybody. And no other corporation has really done that, you know, uh, like an organization. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that Breen wasn't known, if you read film books from the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, he doesn't even have an index reference in a lot of the, the film histories, is that it was all inside baseball stuff. 
he was this classic inside guy. And anybody who works in an organization probably knows that, like, if you're outside the organization, you think the president of the, of the company does all the work. But if you're in the company, right. you know it's this executive right. decision right. Or, or, or the secretary, you go to her if you really want anything done. And Breen was that inside baseball guy. And when the archives came out for the production code administration and scholars started looking at them in, in the mid-'80s and late-'80s, you, you realize like, nothing happened in Hollywood cinema unless, you know, Breen checked it off Mm. and so that intrigued me just that story of this guy who was so influential that people hadn't heard about and then also what you were talking about the sort of the ethnic relationships between you know the irish catholic mediating for the jews what catholics (laughs) want or don't want in their film and then breen telling the catholics well you know the jewish businessmen have certain kind of realities when they buy a property they want to use the title because it's pre-sold and we can take any book and make it a good catholic book no matter how licentious it seems to be you know and that's the problem they had with uh, james m cain you know the postman always rings twice or double indemnity you just got to sort of put it through the breen office you know cuisinart to make it a (laughs) credible hollywood film it's interesting because at least to me it seems like you can see how one book of yours leads to the next leads to the next because i think chronologically you start looking into the pre-code era before breen starts enforcing what he did then you go to breen Mm -hmm. and then more recently you've started looking at the way in which hollywood responded or failed to respond during the run-up to World War II, yeah, yeah. which was in some ways because of the production code that Breen was enforcing mm-hmm. in the sense that you're not supposed to disparage another government, and etc. So Hollywood actually was very surprisingly for a town in which there were a lot of prominent Jews running organizations, was surprisingly quiet during mm-hmm. the buildup of Hitler, right? Yeah, and you know, part of that is just the ethos of the time. Today, you know, when you talk about movies, you're always talking about politics because the the movies are self-consciously now political in a way that they weren't in the 1930s. In the 30s and 40s, the the, the ethos and Sam Goldwyn's famous phrase was if you want to send a message, use Western <laughs> Union. So uh, the notion was you don't want to alienate the Republicans, the pro FDR movie, and you don't want to alienate the Democrats with a, a you know, pro Herbert Hoover movie. So part of it's just the ethos of the time. Secondly, America's in the middle of the Great Depression. We have problems of our own. And it isn't really until 38 where the news from Germany gets so menacing with the uh, the Anschluss, the invasion of Austria, and the the Munich Pact, and then Kristallnacht in November of 1938. And when I was going through the material, I got the the impression of, you know, Dad is at the breakfast table in 1938, and he's reading the newspaper, and he finally looks up and says, wow, this Hitler guy, you know, is really a threat. And that's when you, you, you do see American culture changing. It's still isolationist. It doesn't want to get involved in this European war because it didn't work out so well the last time. But it is anti-Nazi in sensibility and also pro-defense. And FDR manages to put across his pro-defense initiatives in 39-40-41. And it's interesting because one of the things I've learned from your work is that really the only studio that stuck its nose out at all was Warner Brothers in Mm -hmm. terms of pulling its people out of Germany, in terms of putting out a year after what you're talking about, now in 1939, Confessions of a Nazi Spy, the first one to sort of even address this, I think. Yeah, first major studio film. Yeah, Yeah. so why did they jump before the others? You know, Scott, when you think about the studio system, corporations, and capitalism, like there are a lot of people that kind of have these notions of these forces of history and determinants. And I 
really think people are important. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just Jack and Harry Warner. You know, they left you know Eastern Europe for that kind of from that kind of anti-Semitism. They just weren't going to put up with it. And it was these two guys, just the way like Joseph Breen mattered at the production code. Like they had two or three other people who tried to do Hollywood censorship in 31, 32. These guys didn't work out. They tried to replace Breen a couple of times because he was working so hard he wanted to retire. And he did that sort of in 41 and 47 because he was working himself to death. And the guys that they were schooling just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I think Jack and Harry Warner were just these kind of Jewish Americans who weren't going to put up with the sort of anti-Semitism that uh, their fathers had. Mm -hmm. And Harry Warner especially has this great phrase where he says, uh, during the Second World War, that uh, we don't want to be known as the studio that makes the most successful Hollywood musical. (laughs) And you might think that's, you know, grandstanding or something. But I think, you know, if you look at the films they made, you know, they started making their patriotic shorts in the late 1930s that really promulgated you know, values of equalitarianism, tolerance. And you start seeing it in Hollywood films finally in 38, 39, uh, you know, most notably with the famous Warner Brothers platoons where, you know, you have that statistically apportioned, you know, Irish kid from Boston, (laughs) Jewish kid from Brooklyn. And it looks like it it looks kind of a little cliche and cornball to us. But the reason those films worked is they really had a kind of resonance in the culture during war where like my father who's you know south boston irishman you know talked about the first time i ever got to know you know the italian kids from the north end or the jewish kids from blue the blue hill district were you know in the barracks and you kind of realize you know everybody's sort of the same you know and uh, generations of americans who went through that crucible kind of responded to the the movies because the movies reinforce those values and it's sad because i think one of the things that's been lost over the decades is when a place like Warner Brothers is no longer run by the Warner Brothers yeah. who can take a risk on a movie to make a statement that they feel is important. Now, Warner Brothers, like the other studios, is just one piece of a giant corporate conglomerate, in this case, Time Warner, that has to answer to its shareholders and therefore doesn't take risks yeah. and doesn't you know, espouse any kind of a point of view, really, right? I mean, it's just watered down nonsense. Right, or, you know, Daryl Zanuck will take a flyer on the Oxbow incident Mm -hmm. during World War II, you know? Mm -hmm. Of course, he'll get Henry Fonda to make another movie, but, like, (laughs) you know, there's a sense that, yeah, every so often we're going to take a flyer on something that's a little risky because I'm Daryl Zanuck, and and I want to make the first film about anti-Semitism in 1947 because you Jews are afraid to, you know? And I'm I'm a Methodist, and I can get away with it, yeah. So... It takes a a decent amount to piss you off, but I think one thing that pissed you off was a book that came out at about the same time as your great book in 2015, Hollywood and Hitler, 1933 to 1939. That's your book. Around the same time came Ben Irwin's book, The Collaboration, which, let's just note, David Denby in The New Yorker wrote, quote, Doherty's book is much the better of the two, close quote, but both were examining a similar period, but came to very different conclusions. And I just wonder if you can share why you found his so objectionable. Well, he's not here to defend himself. And I think people kind of can maybe read the reviews or look at both books. But I find any view of the past, which sort of looks back on it from the perspective we have without considering what's going on in the 1930s, we, we, we need to remember that in 19, to call somebody a collaborator in 1937, for example, is just a historical. But that word didn't have the echo it has now because World War II hadn't happened, right? And let's just say when we talk about collaborate, what his suggestion was, was that the Hollywood studio chiefs were essentially complicit yeah. with 
the Nazis. Well, yeah, or with the rise of Nazism. The rise of Nazism. And nobody knows what's going to happen with this Hitler guy in, in the 1930s. I mean, obviously, he's you know spouting the anti-Semitism. He's creating a gangster state. But we don't know the Holocaust is going to happen in you know 1937. And if, if you read the contemporary documents from the moguls and, and from the people in the American embassy in Berlin in 1933, 1934, everybody thinks this Hitler guy is going to do what radicals usually do when they get in office, which is sort of become more conservative. And it takes us like really decades after the Second World War to put together the fact that the, you know, the, in some ways the fundamental thing about Nazism is anti-Semitism. It's, it's like it's more important than anything is uh, the elimination of the Jews. And that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And people sort of, in studio terms, why would a nation destroy UFA, which is like the flagship studio for Germany, the only competitor Hollywood was really worried about? You know, and you think of those great German expressionist classics. I mean, the moguls looked at those films and went, good Lord. Right. You know, and stole a lot of the people who made <laughs> yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're going to just get those yeah. people. Yeah. Why would you destroy that industry by purging your talented artist? And you read in 33, 34, what the moguls and the trade press is saying. It's like they just don't get it. So part of it is just confusion. And then part of it, you don't know what's coming. Everybody thinks Hitler's going to get a bullet put in his head in 1937. Mm -hmm. And as the historian Richard Frank has pointed out, if you would stop the clock in 1939, September 1st, the Nazis probably had killed 10,000 people. Now, the, the Japanese had killed over a million Chinese by then. The Spanish-American War had killed hundreds of thousands on both sides. God knows how many millions of people Stalin had killed by 1939. So that's the context. And you can say anything you want, I think, but you kind of have to just be aware of that context. And then, you know, I think that, say, you mentioned Warner Brothers, that I think Warner's did more than any privately owned corporation in America to alert America to the dangers of Nazism. They were privately financing anti-Nazi activity in Hollywood, as Steve Ross's new book uh, demonstrates, and Laura Rosenzweig does the same thing in her new book. They were uh, donating to the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, 5,000 members of the Hollywood community, you know, passionately creating activism against Nazism, and making movies that are first allegorically and then explicitly anti-Nazi. You know? And it wasn't just yep. them. I think Uncle Carl Lemley oh, at Universal Lemley, yeah. saved more people, as you said, than the State Department. Yeah, right. More Jews from the Nazis. Yeah, and that's another unknown story about uh, Lemley, who would finance any Jew who who he could find who wanted to come to America, that he could get to, you know, he wrote hundreds of affidavits guaranteeing their financial security for the, for the, uh, the anti-Semitic yeah. State Department. So... I think it's unfair to characterize the moguls as uh, you know, collaborators yeah. uh, in brief. And then if you look at the movies, starting at 37, the movies are really... There's a wonderful scene in an MGM film written by Dory Sherry called Boys Town. And I always show this clip in my classes because it's golden, where Mickey Rooney comes into Boys Town. He's sort of the tough kid. He doesn't want any of this reformation. And Boys Town is sort of a Catholic community founded by Father Flanagan, but the opening scene at the cafeteria has all the boys pausing for grace and the montage of close-ups of each of the boys, you know, captures all the different ways they're saying grace, including mm-hmm. a kid with a yarmulke mm-hmm. saying grace in Hebrew. He's not called a Jew, but you've got to be really dumb yeah. not to pick <laughs> up on that and also not pick up on it as an anti-Nazi message in 1938. So I've got to ask you, I've now been 
out of Brandeis, weirdly, for about a decade. Really? Yeah. It's been that long? It's been that long. And I am perplexed by something that seems to have really increased exponentially since I've been out Mm -hmm. of Waltham and off college campuses, which is that across the the country, it seems like political correctness and, and sissiness are reaching dangerous levels. Students don't want their views to be challenged, which is, to me, what college is all about. They want them to be affirmed or else they feel triggered or they don't feel safe or all this stuff, which I just find pathetic and ridiculous and infuriating. See, so, ten, 10 years out, you're now in a I know, you know, you're like these a, kids a off my lawn. Yeah, I know, These young kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what, what has happened? You know, I'm not sure. I've encountered a little of it at Brandeis. And it's not good because, like you say, and especially with Hollywood films, it's like an inventory of ugly stereotypes. And you, Gone with you know. the wind, birth yeah. of a nation. Right. And, and I just want to show the films and let's, let's have a conversation about them. And what's happened just recently, and, and I hope this is just a one-off. You know, and you might remember in class, I always show the clips from Birth of a Nation and show Hattie McDaniel. And let's start a discussion about it. Now, some people say this is an ugly stereotype of the mammy that's, uh, you know, oppressed black people since Uncle Tom's Cabin and beyond, right? Other people say, look at this and you're seeing one of the most dynamic performances in Hollywood history. An actress who sort of takes what could be a stereotype and humanizes it and owns every piece of film that she's in. Yeah, right? Let's look at the clip and talk about it. Now, I've always had great conversations with that in the past. But this last time I taught it, there was I could feel feel the fear in the room. And it came because the students didn't know what was the correct answer. Because if you say that it's a stereotype, then maybe you're denying the empowerment of the role. But if you say it's an empowerment of the role, you're denying the stereotype. And there was just sort of this frozenness that I've never encountered before. And I do not want to encounter it again. And I think that the kids are basically okay. We've got a little problem with some of the administrations, which in some ways are, are encouraging sensitivity as the, you know, the main thing a classroom is about, which is this nurturing, sensitive experience like a therapy group. Well, I read a piece that you wrote fairly recently, I think, for Brandeis Magazine, I believe. You had a kind of a, a scarring experience when you were a yeah. freshman, I think, <laughs> in college and raised your hand to ask a question and maybe I'll, I can have you share what happened to you, but also how you say today professors might hesitate before responding similarly to the way that this professor responded to you. So I, I got my alumni magazine and it announced the death of a, a Jesuit priest. As you mentioned, I went to Gonzaga, who I remembered very vividly, a guy named Father Costello, mm-hmm. you know, old school Jesuit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in a freshman class once, you know, when I first came to Gonzaga, and some clueless freshman raises his hand and says, well, I haven't finished the book yet, but I think, <laughs> at which point Father Costello said, well, if you haven't finished the book, you should remain silent and listen to those of us who have. And needless to say, the clueless freshman was me. And it was the kind of moment where, you know, it's a little harsh. Nobody likes to get dressed down in front of a seminar class. But we were all, I think, at the level where, yeah, he was kind of right, and I never came to class ill-prepared again. Mm -hmm. And if I did, I kept my mouth shut. (laughs) And I was at the age, and I think, and I remember I shared this story at dinner with some people, and everybody had a similar story, which is of a coach or a boss or a friend, somebody who had kind of really dressed them down a little bit, and they were at the age... They weren't like 14 or 15 where you'd just be a petulant teenager, but you were mature enough to take the rebuke 
for what it was, which is, you know, this is the big time. You're in a seminar class at a Jesuit university. You want to talk about the book? Well, read the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I took that to heart. And I don't know if a professor could say that today. Because it would make somebody feel Be- because, unsafe. Exactly. <laughs> or then they'd write on your teacher evaluations, which we didn't have in the early 70s. Like a Jesuit would have cared what <laughs> like an 18-year-old would have thought about his teaching technique. Right. And the administrators make hiring decisions on that, especially if you're an unprotected adjunct or a, a lecturer. You know, I'm fortunate. I have tenure. So if, you know, the dean says to me, you know, be more sensitive in your classes, I, I, I can, you know, say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're an adjunct, you can't. Right. And if so much of the university is about in inculcating sensitivity rather than rigor, then you're, you're losing something. And I, I think a lot of people are coming back to this now. And I know the students are right for it because when you're 18 or 19, you sort of want to be challenged if you've got any kind of intellectual ambition at all. So, and it only takes one or two kids if you get a lecture hall of 50 to launch a complaint. So for untenured people, for adjuncts, it's a particularly dicey, dicey time. And, and for those of us with tenure, I think we really have to sort of like, you know, watch the backs of our junior colleagues. And it can complicate matters when institutions themselves get a little scared about pissing people off. And I just have to bring up an example of something where you took a, it shouldn't have been a bold stance, but it was because, or a lonely stance, which was in 2014, Brandeis invited Ayan Hirsi Ali, a woman who, after being abused by Muslims in Somalia, fled to the Netherlands, became a member of the Dutch parliament, and then through various writings became an outspoken critic of Islam and the way it treats women. Brandeis invites her in 2014 to receive an honorary degree and give a address at the commencement ceremonies, then faced criticism from a fundamentalist Islamic group, among others, and then withdrew the invitation and did not give her the degree, did not invite her to speak. Then Brandeis President Fred Lawrence said, quote, commencement is celebration. It is about the graduates and anything that takes the focus off them is a mistake, close quote. This whole episode infuriated you. Well, it infuriated a lot of Brandeis alum, frankly, because, I I mean, the school was founded on principles of free expression, right? Well, you should uh, say, what's the motto? Well, the motto is truth even unto its innermost parts, which, of course, a lot of us say, except when it really offends you, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, because the Brandeis ethos for, you know, you've just been out 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And you're kind of appalled by this, Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, the founding generation of Brandeis, the school was founded in 1948, by a generation of Jews either who had known Nazism firsthand as refugees or who sort of fought in the Second World War. They really saw that the corruption of the university is where the corruption of a political state begins. When you think of the brown shirts coming in and disrupting the lectures of Jewish professors in the early 1930s. So, you know, an ethos that kind of has a broad sense of expression. Let's just all have a kind of uh, an argument about it. And Diane Hersey Alley has literally, you know, risked her life for, what, 20 years now? And yeah, she said some indiscreet things about the Muslim religion in interviews. And I think if people have been trying to kill you for 20 years, you'll occasionally mm-hmm. say something harsh about them. But she certainly deserved that honor. I don't know if she, she was invited to speak at commencement. She's going to speak at some other forum. Okay. But it was reversed. And I think it didn't reflect well on the school. I think it was reported 86 86- Brandeis faculty members signed a letter calling for her to be disinvited. You refused many, to sign many, it. Oh, of course. Yeah. And so did some others. But I mean, you you just felt that it was sort of cowardly to 
uninvite somebody. Right. And if you look at the list of those names, it's many of our gay scholars and our allegedly feminist scholars who are sort of don't think a woman who is like literally put her life on the line Mm -hmm. for her beliefs isn't worthy of recognition. Yeah, I think that doesn't reflect well on the school. You should get an an honorary Jew degree because (laughs) you said that you said, quote, this is a big Shonda, quote, Thomas Doherty. So that was great. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, I always I always joke that, you know, after being at Brandeis, I've I've learned some of the lingo after 25 years and that they should give the new faculty a Yiddish English glossary (laughs) the way uh, they did at the uh, jazz singer in 1927 when the jazz singer came out. The programs had a a Yiddish English uh, glossary for the clueless Gentile. Right. So tell us about your next book, which deals with the Hollywood blacklist. We're now just over 70 years since it was implemented. Mm -hmm. And there are a dwindling number of people around who lived through it Mm -hmm. and were affected by it. I know that out here in L.A., there's Norma Barsman was a screenwriter who was blacklisted. Uh, Marsha Hunt, the actress on the East Coast. There's still Walter Bernstein, the writer who ended up writing The Front about that period, Mm -hmm. and also Lee Grant, who was the only person who really became more successful after being blacklisted Mm -hmm. than she had been before. But for you, why was this the book that you chose to do next uh, after the others that I mentioned, and what was your experience researching it? Well, I'd always been interested in the period. I think anybody who who does Hollywood history is in some ways concerned about the blacklist area. It's such a special kind of window in, in, in Hollywood history. I think with the exception of World War II and Hollywood, it's probably the topic that's been written about and looked at most in Hollywood history is the, is the blacklist period. And I was surprised to find that nobody had done a singular book on the animating uh, moment, which is the investigation by the House Un-American Activities Committee into alleged communist aversion in Hollywood that was held from October 20th to October 30th, 1947. And these are the famous Hollywood 10 hearings that were covered like a blanket by the newsreel. So when you think of the Hollywood blacklist, you're probably thinking of this particular moment, even though there were other hearings throughout the early 1950s, which weren't covered by the newsreels. So anytime you see a documentary about this, you're going to see, you know, the famous images of John Howard Lawson, uh, the screenwriter, and Dalton Trumbo, the screenwriter, being shouted down by a gavel-wielding J. Parnell Thomas, who is the chairman of the committee. Okay? And nobody had done a, a book on those hearings, you know, just sort of a tight history. Uh, so I wanted to do that book and uh, tell some of the other stories, because most of us know the Hollywood 10, but 29 other people testified at the hearings. And they all kind of have interesting stories. And also maybe similar to the, you know, my approach to the Hollywood and uh, Nazism in the 1930s, I wanted to kind of capture the subtleties of the time. It's very easy to look back from the present day and say, geez, I would have done this, or this was the right stance. And you know, I would have given up my job for a principal, right. and you don't get any points for vicarious morality. Right. So right. I want to tell some of these stories and just do a tight history of that. And it turned out to be a really animating moment, not just for Hollywood, but for post-war American culture, because it's kind of the kickoff to what we've seen since. And you were talking earlier about the Weinstein Spring mm-hmm. and the way it sort of reverberated in Washington and actually led to the resignation of a senator so, yeah, so far. Uh, that uh, 
it sort of begins the Washington Hollywood Association mm-hmm. of the, the post-war the era, right? Because because it's the first time you have you know these huge Hollywood stars coming into a congressional hearing room, and it's like a gala premiere, you know, <laughs> where like it's a mob scene. Right. When, you know, Robert Taylor, Robert Montgomery, Ronald Reagan, George Murphy start testifying. One question I had, because I vaguely remember in one of your classes, having it pointed out to us that there was actually no such thing as HUAC, right? Because yeah. in fact, yeah. it was the House Committee on Un-American Activities. So, yeah. But HCUA does not come <laughs> off the tongue as well. <laughs> but right. I guess what surprised you the most in preparing this book? What did you learn Without giving away the goods, because I know this comes out on April 10th, and mm-hmm. we want people to go and, and check it out then. They can pre-order it now on Amazon. <laughs> Maybe you can tease just something that you learned that surprised you. What I learned, I think, is that I always knew there were these two kind of extreme positions. There were the anti-communist on the committee, led by Jay Parnell Thomas, and including a young freshman congressman from California named Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. and then Hollywood 10, right, who were basically communist and acceding to party discipline. But I thought there were a lot of people in the middle that kind of tried to negotiate a position between those two extremes. And and uh, one of the thing, the poignant things about this story, I think, is the impossibility, ultimately, of being able to walk sort of this tightrope between either the anti-communist uh, zealotry of the committee and the communist zealotry of the screenwriters to have sort of a good liberal position and the group that I sort of identified most with was the, uh, what's called the Committee for the First Amendment, which was this group of Hollywood stars, liberals all, who flew to Washington in the midst of the hearings to launch their protest against the committee, not in favor of the Hollywood 10 or uh, the Unfriendly 19, the full gamut of them, but to, to just say it's wrong to do it this way, that the uh, that uh, Congress has a right to investigate these matters, but not at the expense of the First Amendment. And if people are accused of something, they have should have a right across examination and have the evidence in front of them, and they should be able to speak their piece and, and to defend themselves. And that sort of seemed to me like a moderate liberal yeah. position yeah. on this. And you just couldn't maintain it. You know, like the tensions of the time were such that you, you, you know you're in a, a kind of hysteria when you can't have, say, reasonable things. And maybe, you know, the present moral panic yeah. we're in now might be similar yeah, to that, yeah, where, you know, right. Matt Damon can say not all sexual harassment is, you know, the same. Right. You know, there's a difference between rape and, you know, getting fondled. Right. And people, yeah, yeah, right. People are making petitions so that he can't be in Oceans 29 or whatever. It's, uh, <laughs> and at the time, yeah. as as I recall from talking with the person who I believe is the last survivor of the Committee for the First Amendment, Marsha Hunt, Marcia Hunt who's now 100 and amazing, and, and, right? And a, a, a totally coherent, gracious yeah. lady, too. I yeah. mean, she said that it was the most disheartening thing because on that trip, People who probably got the most attention of all were the Brangelina of their day, Bogey and Bacall. Yeah. And by the time they got back from this trip, which I think was, you know, done over the course of a series of flights where they would stop and address different Mm -hmm. parts of the country. By the time they got back to Hollywood, Bogart had recanted his Mm -hmm. support of the group. Something happens between the first and the second week that the committee is actually not supported by the mainstream press and Daily Variety uh, the first week. And they don't seem to be getting anywhere. And in fact, some of the people who are remembered as villains, 
like Reagan and Montgomery and Murphy and Gary Cooper don't name names. They make a very credible presentation, Mm -hmm. Montgomery especially, and Reagan, uh, like who is often seen as somebody who did name names, but he gives a very Jeffersonian speech to the committee. Uh, One of the favorite factoids I found is the uh, Quentin Reynolds, the correspondent for PM, which was a liberal left-wing daily in New York at the time, says, you know, Reagan was just really impressive. He's the only guy who came to the hearings without a lawyer, really eloquent guy, you know, and I might be going out on a limb, but I think this guy has a future in politics. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Yeah, And, and Gary Cooper, Stonewalls, he's not going to name anybody. You know, he's just frontier reticent. And that reverberated in high noon, right? It wasn't there yeah, yeah, some issues? Yeah. With, anyway, but. But the next week, what we look at is kind of, you know, defiant uh, speaking truth to power, which is John Howard Lawson and Dalton Trumbo yelling at the committee, mm-hmm. was seen at the time as disrespect. Mm-hmm. And also when the committee produces the Communist Party cards of the Hollywood Ten. They actually have it in black and white that these guys are communists, that most of America really resents the fact that there are these Beverly Hills Hollywood screenwriters making $5,000 a week, and they're supporting Joseph Stalin. Regrettably, THR at the time was run by Billy Wilkerson, who for all his positive attributes (laughs) was not helpful at that time, right? Well, well, Billy Wilkerson is really leading the charge from Hollywood against the Hollywood communist, both for his ideological reasons, and he thinks that this is going to destroy totally all the goodwill Hollywood had accumulated during the Second World War. That if they're seen that these rich screenwriters and directors are seen as, you know, fifth columnist, as the phrase was at the time, it's going to reverberate against Hollywood at the box office. And no exhibitor in 1947 wants a group of American legionnaires picketing under his marquee. You know, that's just like box office poison. And so the second week is when the culture turns on Hollywood because of the disrespect, as it was seen at the time, of the Hollywood 10 and the fact that the committee actually produces the Communist Party cards of these guys. And that's when the next month, the MPAA under Eric Johnston, Will Hayes' successor, Jack Valenti's predecessor, issues something called the Waldorf Declaration from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, which is kind of the enabling document of the blacklist in which he says the studios are not going to hire a known communist or somebody who doesn't deny their communist party membership or sympathies. And that's the beginning of the blacklist. By December, Bogart recants about a month later because his agent and everybody in Hollywood is saying that this is really box office poison. Uh, If you and John Huston want to make Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Key Largo, you better get on the right side of the American moviegoer. With our final moments here, I just want to do something that we call rapid fire. Just the first thing that sort of comes to your mind about a few things. Number one, what has been the biggest change in Hollywood, the business, since you began teaching it? Is it the rise of TV or streaming or something else? What's the biggest change? Yeah, the the ready accessibility of the materials where I started out teaching 16 millimeter and then went to VHS. And now, of course, you go to computer streaming. The downside of that is, uh, you know, just sort of the wonder of, uh, you know, having a, a group of 40 watch a film at the same time. That doesn't happen on campuses as much and you always fought even after the internet and everything to bring in 35 millimeter prints too yeah we try to yeah Yeah. or or you know gcp or something yeah yeah 
Does it surprise you how little people in the business itself know about film history and the classics or how little academia seems to be valued within the business? Yeah. Although, you know, you mentioned I came out here for the Directors Guild workshop back in the day in the 90s, and I was really impressed. Everybody in the business who spoke with us kind of gave us the Brandeis rap, which is get a good liberal arts education, learn your history, you know, take classes in Shakespeare. We're looking for smart, well-educated people. And it sounded like something the Brandeis admissions officer gives gives the students. But, you know, we heard this from the top people in in the industry. I think there is you know, a bit of appreciation for that kind of broad liberal arts background. You'd know better than me, though, Well, Scott. it just shocks me how, as far as the, the classics, yeah. people, you say, you know, even Casablanca to some people, and they've heard of it maybe, but they've not, you know, I'm talking about at agencies. You say the searchers, they don't know yeah. what you're talking about. At, you know, management companies, at studios. These, really? And it just seems to me that it would be very advantageous for people who are looking for good material to be familiar with the great material that came before them. I wouldn't require everyone to watch the AFI 100 greatest, at least. Well, didn't Bill Mechanic do that? Like, uh, you'd know better than I, I that, know that, that. Yeah, yeah. that he, he actually you know sent out a memo to everybody in the building because they were having some meeting and, and he said, well, this is just a, a science fiction remake of The Searchers and everybody looked at him blank, you know? And he said, I want everybody to know these 50 films oh, by, the, by the end I of a couple of months. Yeah, because they how can should. you? Yeah, yeah. You, you could yeah. do such a better job yeah. at suggesting fixes to things if you know how they've been done well before. Right, yeah, a gay remake of Dublin down there. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 That would just, people would look at you like, you know, with a blank stare. But who are the other film academics who you most respect? Oh, well, you know, there are a lot of them out there. Of course, David Bordwell, I love his stuff. Steve Ross's new book, Charles Milan's stuff on, on Chaplin. The new Michael Curtiz bio by uh, Alan Road. And I, oh, and I, I love the new Scott Iman book, yeah. uh, Hank and Jim, yes, yes. on uh, the 50 year friendship between Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart, yeah, which great. is just a, a wonderful book. Yeah. You we just... recently did an opening segment for one of these episodes where we had the owners of the two best bookstores in Hollywood come in independently. I asked them to send me their top five books of 2017 yeah. related to film. They happened to agree on only two, and that was one of them. So yeah. that was, that's a great one. Yeah. Would you ever consider writing a popular sort of non-academic book about film in the sense of something like The Devil in the White City, where it's obviously dealing with a lot of history, but it's told in a way that's more accessible to a larger number of people? Well, yeah, you know, I I try to do some of that in, you know, anything I write. Like I always say that the work I want to do will meet the scholarly standards of my peers in the academy, but be accessible and interesting to a general readership. So you want to avoid jargon. You want to be able to tell a good story. And part of what I hoped I did in uh, a show trial is just tell some of these really interesting stories of the other people who testified. Because they're, you know, they're, you know, got, you ever hear of Howard Rushmore, who was the film critic for The Daily Worker? And what I love about Howard Rushmore is he breaks with the Communist Party, not over the Hitler-Stalin pact, but over Gone with the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) The party tells him, you've got to write a review that condemns Gone with the Wind, you know, full-scale condemnation. And Rushmore says, oh, yeah, it's a historical hallucination and, you know, capitalist opium of the masses. But the special effects are great. And the Technicolor (laughs) registration, you just can't deny it. And they say, no, you can't say anything good about it. (laughs) And he goes, well, that's too much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so next, I pressured you to get onto Twitter. You were reluctant to do that. Are you happy or not that you're now on it as at Tom Doherty Film? (laughs) 
it's the only social media I, I, I do. I yeah. can't I can't do Facebook or Instagram. Yes. You know, people do not not want to know what kind of bagel I had for for right. breakfast. <laughs> uh, but it is a nice network, and what I particularly like about it is following people who will you know, expose me to things I might not have had. And what I try to do is, to, uh, and, I, and I know you do it too, is avoid the echo chamber effect where you follow people who don't just uh, agree with your brilliance, but actually have different points of view. And I think that's really important just intellectually to make sure that you're just not you know, going into this loop where the feedback is all affirmative right. <laughs> because they agree with me, right? right. They, they have to be as smart as I am. Right. That, that's, I think, the danger of Twitter besides just the compulsiveness right. of it. And then lastly, what do you make of your academic spawn in this industry? <laughs> We've got, among others, Michael Sugar, class of 95, who was one of the people who won an Oscar for producing Spotlight. He said having you at the premiere of that film in Boston was, quote, the proudest moment of my career, close quote. You've got Ross Melnick, who was on this podcast he a few weeks ago. He hadn't won the Oscar. He hadn't won the Oscar. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> right, that's yeah. right. right. Let's stipulate yeah. that. Yeah. Then we had Ross Melnick, who's someone who had been a student of yours, I think class of 96, who then went on to become a professor mm -hmm. at UC Santa Barbara and credits you for wanting to go down that path. You've got people who make films. Adam Irving, class of 07, recently made a documentary that got widespread acclaim. You've got Arnon Shore, I think class of 05, mm -hmm. who is out here working as well. And the list goes on. And I just wonder if there's sort of a goodbye Mr. Chips moment here for you, <laughs> just to think about all of this. <laughs> as I'm on my deathbed, yes. right? I've never had any children, but all of them boys. Yes, right. Uh, right. No, it's very gratifying. And I don't take any credit for it because these I, I remember all of these these young men and women who, you know, when they came into class, it was like they're loaded for bear. I figure like when you walked into class, I figured I'd be working for you in five <laughs> years, you know, I mean, and the same with Mike Sugar and Mike Mayer and, the, and, and those guys. They I, I think the, the best you can do is maybe sort of like validate their interest and say, yeah, you really shouldn't go to law school, <laughs> you know, that, that you really want to go into the business and that everybody in Hollywood always says, oh, it's a terrible, it's a cruel business. Get out of the business, kid. But everybody I know who's kind of in the business is happy to be there. And most of people are doing what they like. And at its best, it's this, you know, Jimmy Stewart's line is like, you're giving people pieces of time, you know, <laughs> and that is gratifying to you know, be able to get together with folks like you again. Well, I, I owe you a lot. And I thank you for coming and doing this. And a pleasure, Scott. People should go check out Show Trial again, available on Amazon right now. Thanks a lot. Professor Thanks, Scott. And now for my interview with Mary J. Blige. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 46-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how her life has been shaped by growing up in the projects of Yonkers, having her father walk out on the family when she was four, and being molested by a caretaker at the age of five, and also by the presence of music in the home, starting at an early age, how a trip to the mall at the age of 17 started a series of events that resulted in her signing a record deal with Andre Harrell's Uptown Records in 1989 when she was just 18, and under the tutelage of Uptown's A&R head Puff Daddy, creating a new genre of music, hip-hop soul, how she handled, or really struggled to handle, the fame and fortune that came with the success of her first album, 1992's What's the 411, and how those struggles and the challenges that she had faced throughout her life came pouring out in her second album, 1994's My Life, and cemented a special connection that she has with female fans who admire both her toughness and her vulnerability, 
Why 2001 marked a major turning point in her life, personally and professionally, from confronting her substance abuse problems to making her big screen acting debut in the indie prison song to scoring her first number one hit with a song from her fifth album, No More Drama, namely Family Affair, which stayed atop the charts for six weeks. How marital strife, culminating in a 2016 divorce, has been the subject of more recent albums, including 2017's Strength of a Woman, and how acting, for which she recently relocated to L.A., has proven to be as cathartic an outlet for her emotions as singing, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ms. Blades, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We always begin... Just with the basics, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in a Fordham Hospital mm-hmm. in the Bronx. My mother was a nurse. My dad was a, a funk band musician, but he was gone by the time we were, not dead, but like, you know, my mom was a single parent mom yeah. by the time we were like four years old, but he would come back and forth yeah. up until the point where we were like nine years old. Okay. Just a... I guess a fun fact question people might be wondering, what does the J stand for? Jane. Yeah? Yeah. And where does that, where does that come from? I'm actually a second Mary Jane Blige. My father named me after his mother, gotcha. Mary Jane Blige. There you go. So I went back and read a lot of profiles and things of you that have been written since the beginning. And basically the, the takeaway that I had was that the family didn't have much, but music was always a presence in the home. Is that fair to say? Yeah, music was everywhere all the time. I mean, the first time I ever heard any music, I was four years old, and that was the first time I ever heard Roy Ayers' Everyone Loves the Sunshine. By the Mm -hmm. time I was five, there was blasting Stevie Wonder song in the key of life all through the house, and my mom was just like queen of soul. (laughs) (laughs) And she played with every woman from Betty Wright to Gladys Knight to the staple singers, any woman of soul through the house. And so, you know, you've talked about the fact that there were very tough times. I mean, it was in Projects and Yonkers. I think, what did what was the name of it? Only because the nickname of it is pretty funny, too. The name of the projects we live in was called Schroeder Street, but the nickname was called Slow Bomb, which Slow. is what everybody identifies with. Right. I understand why it was called Slow Bomb now, because it was such a, it was like prison. It was like prison, and it was no place for any child to be raised. But my mom was a single-parent mom. And she was trying to get, you know, get on her feet and raise her children. And we ended up in these projects where, like, it was every man for themselves at all times. If you was a kid, you was struggling for your life every day, going up against grownups, trying to get into your building, trying to get to your house. So it was not a cool situation, mm-hmm. and, but we survived it. It was it was very, very negative. You mentioned at four, I guess, your father left at five, and we certainly won't harp on this, but you've said you had a... a terrible thing where I guess a caretaker molested you and things that just throughout those years, it was a a tough thing, but singing, I guess, was an escape for you? Yeah, when I was five and, you know, that happened. It was Songs of the Key of Life that really, you know, it was in singing. It was singing that album and seeing those colors that Stevie Wonder played and singing those songs and just singing, period, is what really helped me. It really gave me freedom, just as it does now. It gives me freedom. It helps me to fly away from all of my negative situations and especially that situation Mm -hmm. it's it's something that i've had to fly away from even still Mm -hmm. now so well the other interesting thing was that in one interview you said your mom never let you see her cry but you knew she was hurting because of the music that she listened to so in a way you learned 
I guess at a young age, the subtext of music, what it could be that how other people use music in their lives. Yeah, I didn't really understand the words of what she was listening to until I got older, but the feelings of the songs were always melancholy and sad or, you know, or telling someone off. (laughs) And I didn't understand that till later in life. And she was just this really beautiful woman that I could just, I, I would feel all her pain, although she was trying to hide it. I was probably always up under her, so I could feel everything from her. Mm-hmm. She would listen to songs like, I'm a victim, and I didn't know what that meant until <laughs> later. Like, oh, wow, I right. know what that means now, because right. I'm a victim. <laughs> you know, I'm a victim in the, of the very song I sang, Candace State sang that song. So, yeah, mm-hmm. my mom taught me a lot about what that meant. So, as you grew up, I was reading, you sang in church choir, you did some school talent shows, is it true you were in a you were in a band? I guess in the in the projects. I was in a core. Um, it was called Yonkers Challengers. I was on the drum line uh-huh. temporarily. And then, when did it first occur to you though that you might actually be able to do something professionally with this? What was the first inkling? Just before you know anyone else told you that you had a future in this. What, when did you think it might be a possibility? I didn't think it was a possibility for a, a long time, but I knew it was something that I loved to do. But when I was seven years old, I sang Reunited mm-hmm. by Peaches and Herb, and that's like a duet. Mm-hmm. So I sang the man's part and the woman's part. <laughs> so at seven, I was like, hmm, I'm pretty unique. <laughs> I could do both <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at the same time. But I never thought about it being something I could do. I knew I could do it professionally, but it wasn't something that I went after. It was yeah. something that came to me. So before we get to the crazy series of events, I guess, that led to it actually becoming a formal thing, what happened now around 15, 16, where I guess you end up out of your house, out of school, this is now 11th grade, hanging with some people who you shouldn't be hanging with, weren't positive influences, I guess, from the projects next to yours. What led to this sort of downward spiral? I mean, I was a kid and I was living in the projects Mm -hmm. and I was going through so many different things and so many Things had transpired from the thing that had happened when I from when I was five. It just caused me to think of myself as low and as nothing, and and that I you know deserve so many bad things to happen to me. So bad things just kept happening to me. And I don't want to go into detail, mm-hmm. but you know I've been sexually harassed and abused <laughs> before I even you know like even you know this is what everybody's talking about now. Mm-hmm. This has been happening to me since I was a child all the mm-hmm. way up until an adulthood. Mm-hmm. So. These are the things that made me just rebel and made me drink and made me do drugs and made me just, I just wanted to forget that episode from five. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to forget what happened at nine. Then I wanted to forget what happened at 16. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to forget everything that just kept happening. So it's something that happens to to us. We just want to forget. So, you know, we do whatever we can to numb it or forget about it. So it's 1988, you're 17. You wind up at a mall in White Plains. There's a karaoke booth. Can you take the story from there? Well, yeah, I was in the mall. It was the first time the Galleria Mall had opened up a karaoke machine, and everybody was talking about, oh, you should go down to, you know. But I didn't go for that. I was with my cousin shopping, and she was like, you should go and record in in the booth. I've never really recorded in a studio yet or in a booth Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And I went in, and I recorded Anita Baker's caught up in the rapture. And my mother's boyfriend at the time, I called him my stepfather, mm-hmm. was someone that knew someone at Uptown Records. Was this Jeff Red? Yeah, Jeff Red worked at General Motors with my mother's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I gave him the tape 
And he just lost his mind. I played the tape for him of me singing Caught Up in a Rapture, and he went crazy mm-hmm. and said, I know somebody that can help you. I'm going to take this tape to Jeff Red, and he's going to get somebody that can help you. So the tape got passed to Jeff Red. Mm-hmm. Jeff Red knew uh, uh, he was already signed, so Andre, he, he passed the tape on to Andre Harrell, mm-hmm. who was the CEO of Uptown Records. Andre Harrell came down to the projects. They, <laughs> yeah, came to the projects, came up to the apartment, and I, I sang almost half of the Rapture album because it, it seemed like every song on that album was like a hit at that mm-hmm. time, and I and I knew every song on the album. Mm-hmm. So, and I sang in the living room, and from that point, the rest is history. Yeah. So he signed you to a deal at Uptown Records. This is 1989. Around that time, he told the New York Times, "Quote." There hasn't been a woman with the voice and the lifestyle and the attitude of an inner city young adult girl. I had my eyes set on developing the right girl, and Mary was just right. She embodied the attitude. Cool, humble, soulful. She reflects the reality of today's black girl, so she'll sell, close quote. What do you make of that when you hear that all these years later? Why did he see in you so much potential that you didn't see in yourself at that point? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I I guess I was different. Um, There were so many women that were coming out at the time and everyone was, you know, beautiful and poised like Whitney or mm-hmm. beautiful and poised like Mariah. And they were just, you know, these beautiful, flawless women. And I was just this ghetto, <laughs> <laughs> wild girl from, you know, the projects who could sing and who had a story that was compelling for people to hear. And I guess that's what Andre saw. He, you know, I guess that's what Andre and Puff saw because Puff, you know, was one of the reasons why I'm here too. Yeah, I want to ask you about him because, so at the time, was he Puff or Sean or Puffy or what was? What did you call him at that time? He was all. He was always Puff. Puff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he was. I guess he was Andre's head of A and R, and was sort of it seems like assigned or chose to be your main point of contact there. Mm-hmm. And he has said, "quote I was looking at Mary and was like." Trying to make her glamorous would be the wrong move. She was raw and she represented the streets, so I wanted her image to reflect that, and that's why we went with combat boots, and I wanted her to represent a girl from the hood. Close quote. Is that how you remember too, or was was that actually who you were? Did they really was it a, truly a matter of creating a persona for you? That's exactly what I was. I mean, before I was Mary J. Blige the singer, I was wearing the the jeans that the guys wear, like Jabol's baggy jeans and <laughs> Timberlands and. Fila sneak, you know, just whatever was the hottest sneaker, I would try to go get the hottest sneaker. I was, I didn't wear shoes and things like that, right. you know, until I was really in the music business, mm-hmm. like an, an adult, like past like my second album. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to even get into like makeup. Really, it was hard. <laughs> it was a fight. Like me and Puff had to fight over like me wearing like little, you know, little tiny shorts. You know, a lot. <laughs> well, so he was your closest collaborator on those first two albums produced it these are this is what's the 411 in 92 and my life in 94 and i guess together but really through your voice you guys created this new sort of sound and so can you explain what you understand hip-hop soul to be or at the time they were calling it new jack swing and how that wound up being your genre because it didn't really exist before you came along right well before i came along it was all about new jack swing and you know it was all about that type of R&B. When I came along, I kind of like simplified it. It was loops. Like, you know, we took a staple singers loop or a Melissa Morgan loop, and, you know, or whatever the hot audio two loop mm-hmm. and 
would sing over that hip hop beat or would sing over that Roy Ayers beat. Mm-hmm. And so it was just really being a rapper that can sing because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a timing that, you know, it was a, it's a timing that rappers have that I have right. that I sing with. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so nobody had even really tried that before, huh? No. Did you realize that? Well, I, you know, that's not true because Soul to Soul came through. Mm-hmm. It was the big London invasion. Okay. And Soul to Soul did uh, Keep On Moving and they used Biz Markie's Picking Boogers. Right. That was the first time we heard that. Right. And then we never even heard it again after that. But Soul to Soul actually did it with um, However Do You Want It. And then... So that was and, an influence for you or is that something you learned after the fact? I mean, subconsciously, yeah. I think it was because Keep On Moving was a song that inspired me to move forward, mm-hmm. you know, like to, to to stay positive that something positive was going to happen in my life. Mm-hmm. So maybe subconsciously it, it, it did. But what's crazy is Puffy had nothing to do with my life when I was living in the projects. Right, and right. then he came and this is what we did. He was like, this is what we're doing. And I was like, yes, this is what we're doing. <laughs> and this is what I love to do, you know, so. You just happen to be on the same pitch there with what you were looking for. Yeah. Um, the New York Times said at the time, Quote, there was a deep divide in black pop. Either a performer sang over melodies or rhymed over rhymes. Mr. Combs had Ms. Blige sing over rhythms, close quote. And other people have sort of, another way it was described was, quote, blending the techniques of rapping and hip hop with aspirational messages in R&B. All this stuff, I think you said, quote, and this is sort of what you've just said now, but quote, I loved hip hop and R&B and I was doing what I love and I didn't realize what we had done till later, like later, like, wow, we created a whole genre of music. That's a pretty uh, amazing thing to have, or, you know, even if there was the one example before. I mean, you certainly po- popularized it. Yeah, it's true. Real love, I'm, real love really just opened the door. Like, it just broke everything open. Yeah. It exploded. Mm-hmm. Because, I, I mean, you know, you have a, the audio too. Milk is chilling. You know, you know Giz is chilling. Mm-hmm. That beat was so popular in the hood. Mm-hmm. And then it exploded into the music business. Yeah. And, and it was, and then I'm singing over it, you know, it was, who is this girl? Yeah. Well, yeah. to that point, I, I found one quote. This is from 99 in the New Yorker. Sister Soldier, of all people, wrote about hearing about you in the run up to the release of your first album. She said, quote, I had never seen guys, popular guys, so united and solid around a female performer. Not MC Lay or Queen Latifah or any young sister for that matter. I guess so there was, I, I think a lot of it was Puff was letting people know to be, get ready because you were, it was a pretty anticipated thing when you hit the scene, right? Yeah, he was a marketing genius. Mm-hmm. He, he knew how to get the word out. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the first album, What's the 411, comes out, which I guess had previously been heard on the soundtrack for Strictly Business, mm-hmm. goes gold. The album sells 2.2 million copies. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yeah, it was You Remind Me. I was on um, the West Side Highway with my one of my girlfriends in a red Forerunner, and it came on the radio, and I was just I just started thanking God because mm-hmm. I knew that I'd be able to get my mom out the projects, and we were on our way. Mm-hmm. How did your life change as a result of the first album, and how did you handle those changes because it's a lot to come at somebody at once, right? Yeah, well, I was already a mess still. So <laughs> when you 
put that much fame and success on someone that's already a mess and still trying to come through, you know, trying to figure out who they are, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, inside. Everything is easy to get. Alcohol is easy to get. Drugs are easy to get. You, you don't care. You just, I mean, you're just spinning out of control mm-hmm. and it just seems like everything is going down, 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 down. But everybody's looking at you thinking you're up, 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 right. up. And you're this thing, but you're caving, caving, caving in. And by the time I got to the My Life album, I was like, uh, I'm going to check out now. Yeah. I think I did the most. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so that's where My Life came from. It was like a cry for help. Yeah. I mean, so this is two years after What's the 411. In the meantime, in between those two years, I think, as you've sort of referenced, maybe some of the personal issues that you were dealing with spilled over a little bit into the public view. And so there was this perception with journalists or people that you were difficult or, you know, whatever, but you were actually going through a lot of turmoil yourself is what you're saying, right? Yeah. I was going through my, with my own demons. I was fighting, still fighting things from that happened with me since childhood. Like it's like, we, we still, I'm I'm still fighting those things. That doesn't go away just because you're successful. Yeah. We just learned how to handle them better, but I didn't know how to handle them at all. So success and fame just made it worse. And it didn't spill out a little bit. It was everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) When I I exploded into a mess all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that second album, My Life, though, another way in which it was different, I guess, from What's the 411 was that you wrote or co-wrote almost all those songs, right? And they were very personal in a way that the first album wasn't. And they were dealing with a lot of the pain and things that you're talking about having experienced in those two prior years. Was it cathartic? Was it helpful to have aired that out to the world? Because I think a lot of people began relating to you on on the level that they loved how honest you were about and relatable in, in having these problems, but did it do anything? So it helped them, but did it do anything for you? Well, w- what helped me is the fact that I found out that so many people felt like me and lived and were living like me. I thought, you know, sometimes you think you're the only one when you're suffering, and then you find out like 4 million people mm-hmm. or however many people bought the album this is what created the fan base that I have now. Mm-hmm. We have like a relationship because I'm someone that wasn't afraid. I didn't have a choice. I didn't have anything to lose. So mm-hmm. I spoke it all onto this album, which was like my diary at the time. Mm-hmm. And Puff allowed me to have created control mm-hmm. over this this album. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, I, I told him what I was going to do. And he was like, go ahead, let it rip. I love this. <laughs> and Rolling Stone, by the way, years later, chose it as one of the top 50 albums of all time. So you did something right there. The third album, just to connect the dots here, the third album, Share My World in 97, included Not Gonna Cry, which was number two on the charts, number one on R&B charts, first of all your songs to go platinum. Your fourth album then, two years after that in 99, was, I think, kind of noteworthy for the range of people you did duets with, which is just unbelievable. Everyone from Aretha Franklin and Lauryn Hill to Elton John and Eric Clapton. And yet, even with all of this success in music, I thought it was interesting that right around that time is when you first started getting into acting a little bit. You made your TV debut in 99 on The Jamie Foxx Show. You made your film debut in 2001 in this indie prison song. And then it went from there. But were you always hoping when you first became a public person to get into acting? Or was it just something that other people suggested as you became more well-known? No, acting was something I always wanted to do because... When I was about seven years old, we, we had music class mm-hmm. and my teacher, Miss Sweeney, mm-hmm. she knew I could sing. She already <laughs> knew that. And then she put on this play and me, me and this guy, she wanted us to play a couple in this Christmas play. 
And I remember being excited and I don't know why I was so yeah. excited to, to act. Maybe you like this guy. I mean, that could be, right? I don't know if it was the guy. <laughs> I think it was something, you know, I just liked expressing myself. Mm-hmm. And when we did the play, I can feel it while I was doing it. I could feel like, wow, I'm, I'm actually doing yeah. this. And later on, the chatter around the school was like, oh, my God, Mary. I don't want to say the guy's name. Mary and such and such. <laughs> this is so good in the play. And we were all like, oh, he's that good. <laughs> and that was something that traveled with me like all my life. But it was I lived in such a dark place. And, you know, when you live in the you live in these dark places, you cannot get too happy because people would just love to just smack that smile mm-hmm. off your face. Mm-hmm. So I had to suppress everything in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I got to the music business and it was available, it was like, oh, wow, I don't have to worry about, you know, having a, somebody being mad or right. jealous over what I'm, you know, thinking of doing. So I, I, yeah, it was, when it was available, I went for it because it was something I always wanted to do. And had there been other, at that point, were there other people who had first made their name as singers who were going and doing acting work as well? I'm trying to think, mm-hmm. like, certainly not really Mariah or Janet or... I mean, absolutely. Queen Latifah is yeah. a huge inspiration of mine. Mm-hmm. She is a hero because mm-hmm. she was a she was a rapper who can absolutely sing mm-hmm. for real and act. And that was like impressive to me. Like, And I was like, wow, I really love and respect her for being able to do all of it and mm-hmm. do it well. She inspired me mm-hmm. to, to do what I'm doing. And so just over the years between those first acting credits and today... We should remind people you've been in movies ranging from I Can Do Bad All By Myself for Tyler Perry through Rock of Ages, where you're singing very different music than you normally mm-hmm. sing. Also on TV, the TV movie Betty and Coretta with as Betty Shabazz. So it's been building for time. It's clear that it's been- Well, let's go back to Rock of Ages for yeah. a minute, because what I forgot to mention to you is when we were little kids, there was a radio station that we had playing in the house all the time called WNBC. Mm-hmm. And it was not R&B. And it wasn't hip hop. It was soft rock. So I knew I I Did know you like I, it? I love yeah. soft rock. Okay. I, I, I listen to it now on Pandora. So right. I mean I I can go and name that tune. <laughs> just so we're clear, I I, I love music, yeah. period. Yeah. It's just that, you know, hip hop and R and B was the bulk of what I grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. The time around September eleventh, two thousand one was pretty brutal in your life, even before the attacks happened, right? Because I was reading about just one day in late August 2001 where, from what I was able to understand, you'd been going through a tough time, I guess you've said drinking heavily, and you were doing a show at the Apollo Theater in Harlem and overheard something that convinced you to sort of turn your life around. And then just a few hours later, I guess that same night, got some terrible news. So, I mean, can you just talk about the the whirlwind of stuff that affected you on a very deeply personal level in that, I guess, August 25th, 2001? Well, I was already on the verge of just seeing myself and knowing that something had to change. And then that same night, Aaliyah was killed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I got to stop. Like, I mean, easily that could have been me, you know, not paying attention and doing what I'm doing. And I hate that that happened to her because she was just like an angel, you know, just ready to take off in her own career. And I just thought, I just looked at myself, I just looked at it being me when it happened because I was right at that very moment in my life, I was like ready to turn, but making a decision. But it was that thing that made me be like, 
done. Def- definitely done with some of the bad habits. Done, yeah. yeah. Three days later, your fifth album, No More Drama, was released, and the single Family Affair wound up at number one on the U.S. Hot 100, better place than any song you'd ever done. And it stayed there for six weeks through 9-11 and all the aftermath. So at that time, it was important to a lot of people through some very tough things. You must have felt pretty emotionally conflicted at that time. You're having some of the best moments of your career at a time when the world is falling apart around you. It just always seems like I couldn't really enjoy it the way I wanted to. And I I didn't realize what was happening and what how big of a star or how big this record had made made me a star mm-hmm. until I was on tour. There was this um I don't want to say country, but mm-hmm. these um southern yeah. you know, bus drivers like from Texas and things like that. He was listening to a country station. Mm-hmm. And I heard him listening to the country station. And then I heard Family Affair come on. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, did you change the station? He said, no, this record comes on all the time. I said, what? <laughs> I said, then, right then I, I, I knew, I said, um, okay, I need to really, really get it together yeah. because I am being watched. I didn't even know pe- people care that much until that moment. Mm. You have said, and this is flashing forward a little bit, but it relates to that period in your life. A few years later, when Whitney Houston died, you've said that that really affected you. And a lot of people look at someone beautiful and talented and rich and famous like her, like you, and they say they wonder how someone can fall to that point. I think we were all thinking when we read this or, you know, people in the general public, I should at least say, were, you know, weren't there people in her life who could have told her that she was heading in a bad direction or or tried to stop her and get her the help that she needed? And You've spoken about the fact from having gone through your own tough times that it often isn't the case that people intervene because they fear getting kicked out of the inner circle, right? I mean, is that your experience as well? You could mm-hmm. see how it ended up that way with her? Absolutely. People just let you do what you they, you want to do because they want to keep getting paid. It's easier to deal with you if you're drunk and you don't know what's going on and you just want to party and they're yes-manning you to, to death. And if you don't have something in you that recognizes this or that wants to want to survive this, you, you're not going to survive. So people will yes man you to death. And I mean, it's, it's, it's up to you whether you choose life or not. So in your case, had you not, because of the Aaliyah tragedy and because of sort of an ultimatum at home and just a number of things, if you had not chosen to turn your life around, you you see the, a scenario where you could have ended up in the same place? Yeah. Easily. You then, it seems like, made much more deliberate decisions going forward about how you were going to do things that were creatively satisfying to you. You're not going to do things to please other people, right? And so with the sixth album in 2003, you've said, quote, I lost a million fans when I put out Love and Life, close quote. What did you hope to do with that album, and why do you think you lost a million fans? Well, I lost a million fans because... I created this fan base with the darkness of, of um, I don't, you know, I don't want to live no more. I want to be, you know, just this is what was I was dealing with. And when I decided to choose life and choose a husband, everybody was saying things like, oh, we like the miserable Mary better. But all I could think about was, okay, if I created this fan base with this darkness and this self-hate, then if if I check out, then maybe some of them will too. So I chose life so that 
I can save some life. Hopefully they'd follow you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But a lot of them did. And a lot of them, a lot of them didn't. Mm-hmm. But I didn't care that, that I had to choose my own life in order, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't even know if I was trying to save somebody's life. I had to choose my own life. What I didn't want to do is kill a bunch of people. Yeah. You, you understand yeah. what I mean? And to, or just to, to adhere to the image that they first fell in love with, that, that would be holding yourself back. You were not going to just keep doing the same kind of thing because that's what they liked. Right. If they would, they could either get on board or not. Right. I had to be honest. Yeah. I had to be honest with myself first. I thought an amazing thing that you did that I read about happened in 2010 where, you know, we mentioned earlier in 11th grade, you'd left school. Mm-hmm. Why, after all the success and, you know, in so many different regards, why in 2010 did you decide to go back and get your GED? I hate being uneducated. It's the most, it's the terrible feeling. And it makes me feel bad if, if I can't articulate myself. It makes me feel bad when I don't know what I'm talking about. It's embarrassing to me. And I just, I never wanted to be, I didn't want to be an idiot. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to, you know, I, I wish, really hope that I can get education. Mm-hmm. I didn't finish because of the situations. Mm-hmm. It was just too much to finish. Mm-hmm. You know, it was too much. <laughs> and I think that maybe coincidentally, maybe not, leads into a year later, you put out your 10th album. And I love my life too, going back to the 94, my life. Mm-hmm. And in this time though, Whereas in 94, it had been, look at all the the horrendous things I've had to deal with and I'm still dealing with them and whatever. Here, it's more kind of coming to terms with those things, right? It was a much more, I don't know, is there, how would you connect the two? Well, my life too was actually an, another cry for help because I had hit a road bump in my marriage. I couldn't tell everybody what was happening, but I was telling them what was happening. I was telling them, oh my God, I can't, this is bad. That it was starting to fall. This apart. is bad. This yeah. is bad. This is really, really bad. And I'm and, and and I'm trapped. But nobody believed me because I had to act like I wasn't trapped. Some people might wonder how could Mary J. Blige, who can take her talent anywhere and has made a lot of money doing this and can do what you know, how can she feel trapped? Can't she just pick up and leave? And I guess in this case, was it partly because of the fact that no, you your husband was your manager also? No, 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 it's love. Yeah, when you love someone. You want to make it work. Mm-hmm. You, you're trapped, but you, at the same time, I can't express myself. I, I have to be honest. So I have to express myself the only way I know how. Mm-hmm. But I love this man and I'm trying to make it work, but I still have to speak. But nobody could hear me because I still love this man. How did he respond to the album? It didn't matter to him because as, as long as I was protecting him, it was all good. And, you know, it seems like another kind of way of singing about what you were dealing with, but also maybe slightly avoiding uh, it in a way was was the next album, right? The London Sessions. You picked up your life and went to London and did a bunch of great duets with British people and people like Sam Smith. But essentially, were you trying to get away from this, like without trying to avoid dealing with it? It had already exploded all over the news. Yeah. <laughs> it was all, you know, it was, it was one bad thing after the next. My business was all over it, all over the ticker. <laughs> One every single day it was something awful being said about Mary J. Blige, and I had to carry this weight all by myself. And they were the world was crucifying me, and my fans were running and they were laughing, and it was just like, ah, and I was carrying this alone. He wasn't helping me carry it; he was running, mm-hmm. and I was carrying it. And I needed to get out of the United States, and I needed to do something different. 
And that's why I went to do the London sessions because I needed to free myself as an artist again. And I needed to free myself as a human being and just not feel judged for being a human being. And in fact, the collaborations there, you said, quote, they helped boost my self-esteem and they helped me believe in my talent, close quote, which again, I think for the average Joe, they, the idea that you would have low self-esteem or doubt your talent is hard for them to wrap their heads around. But I don't understand why when we're all human, like just because we are Mary J. Blige and Whitney Houston, it doesn't mean that we're not human and we have things we, we are challenged with. Some of us are insecure for the rest of them. I don't think we'll ever be whole and full until we die. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, and we're sensitive as artists. We're always being picked on. We're always in the public eye. Yeah, and, and I'm not afraid or ashamed to say, yes, the London sessions did help me on my, my self-esteem again because how do you know I was confident? How do you know I wasn't being picked on at home and someone was saying, you will never be this and you're not this and you're not, 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 mm-hmm. not, 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 and this, you're not, 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 has really started to chip away at me. Mm-hmm. People go through that. Mm-hmm. You, some some artists just check out, you know, yeah. Kurt Cobain, he checked out. He said, right. I couldn't take it anymore. Right. So after returning from London, pretty soon after, I think you moved to L.A. Why? I moved to L.A. because I wanted to start my acting career. To really focus on it. Really, really focus on it. And this was a change I thought I needed to make. Now, you made Mudbound in the summer of 2016. So before it came out in theaters, though, after it was at Sundance, but before the rest of the world got to see it, you put out your 13th and most recent album, Strength of a Woman, back in April. And this was now dealing, I guess, with the aftermath of what we've been talking the about explosion. the explosion yeah. right mm-hmm. of this of this marriage i mean just to tee up one little example from the song set me free you sing quote tell me how you figure that you made me and you gave me what i had before i met you and gonna have it when you're gone and then go on there's a special place in hell for you close quote so i think you weren't gonna hold back anything at this point you were oh at that point i was letting it rip it didn't <laughs> right. even matter i was just i was like a dragon <laughs> because I, I it was like i couldn't believe that what i was feeling and that what i was living was really real mm-hmm. like intuition is one thing and instinct is one thing but what's really scary is to know you were right the whole time and so once i found out that i was right i just right about just knowing that you shouldn't have been in there in the first place just right about knowing what was going on Mm -hmm. the whole time. And that was 12 years, is that right? 13 years, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so that brings us, though, from kind of downer subject matter to upper subject matter. Here here we go to Mudbound. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Florence Jackson, the wife of a sharecropper in 1940s Mississippi in Mudbound. This character, just generally before we get into specifics, have you ever come across this kind of material before and and a script that's been sent to you or anything like that? Or is this just, you know, when you saw this, did your eyes kind of uh, go wide and and realize right away what you were dealing with? I never received a script like this before. Never. This is why I was just so happy. I was already happy because D. Reese had offered me this part. Right. (laughs) But I was ecstatic, you know, once I read the script because I was going to be a part of something really important. So Dee Reese, for people who need a reminder, made her excellent, I believe, feature debut. It was with Pariah back in 2011. Then she goes and does Bessie with Queen Latifah. 
with whom you share a manager, I believe. And so when she was thinking about, you know, putting together Mudbound, she says that I think she saw you in The Wiz live on TV and was reminded about how talented an actress you are as well. And then thought, wait a minute, I know her manager because of the person in common with Queen Latifah who'd been in, again in, in Bessie. So she reaches out to you with the script. And by the way, she also said, quote, with Mary's music, if you've been to her concerts, it's literally like a therapy session for thousands of people. I needed a character that can make people feel, and I knew she could bring it, close quote. How did she first reach out to you? Was it just through this manager? Yes, it was through Shock Him. And it was a full script or just a just a summary or I want to meet with you or what was it? No, it was um, Shock Him had the script. Yeah. And he sent it to me and I read it as soon as I got it. Yeah. And I was just blown away emotionally just from so many emotions mm-hmm. reading it and the the thing that really really struck me is the the silver lining how love was threaded all through it and how love can save the day and that's rare in these types of scripts love never saves the day during the Jim Crow era <laughs> <laughs> so once you agreed to do it D has said that she put you and the other actors through some unusual acting exercises. Can you explain what some of those were and why you think she had you do them? Well, she would put us in the room with each, the character that we were playing up against, and we had to find this character Mm -hmm. by speaking. And she would ask us, well, who is your husband to you? Just fresh, like, Mm -hmm. who is this man? I had to look at this man I've never seen before (laughs) and find out who he was and and say who he was. And so that was kind of hard because I didn't know who he was yeah. because I was still Mary J. Blige. Yeah. I wasn't Florence yet. Right. He was already, he was in character because he beat me there already. He was in character. So you got thrown right in the deep and, end. Yeah. And he just went, you know, from grabbing me, there goes my, he goes my woman. And just the whole thing just kind of threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read so. an, a, another one, right? She has you and Carrie Mulligan just stare at each other. Yeah. That was weird too. <laughs> but I love Carrie because Carrie right. is so real. She's, right. she's so real. and. It was so refreshing to sit there with someone that you knew didn't want to let you in for real. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to let her in for real, but we had to stare at each other and say, you have the power. No, you have the power. No, you have the power. And see how that affects how you're looking at each other. How we look at each other. And we had to stare at each other directly in the eyes and see everything about each other. Like I could see that she didn't want to, she didn't really know me. I didn't <laughs> right. really know her. And she was not trying to let me in at all. So that was really cool. Well, it ended up being really useful, I would guess, for this character, though, because she's somebody who doesn't say very much in terms of dialogue, but she communicates a lot, and a lot of that's through the eyes, right? Right, exactly. And actually, from the things that I've heard you say in other interviews, maybe I'm way off about this, but in a way, the character sounds a a little bit like your mom. She's hurting, but she doesn't want other people to see that. She's not going to let her kids see that. Well, because my grandmother... Is Florence. You know, um, when we were kids, my mother used to send us to Georgia because my mother's a Southern woman. Mm-hmm. My father's a Southern man. My mom would send us to Georgia in the summer because the summers would get really bad in the projects mm-hmm. at the time. And my grandmother was Florence Jackson. She had a farm. She had chickens. Everything we ate, she killed. My grandfather, he was a sharecropper. He, you know, every time we came, he was cutting grass. Mm-hmm. He was digging, you know, in, in, in the gardens. But they they grew collard greens. They grew okra. They grew peas. I watched them. I watched them kill chickens. <laughs> and I, it was a situation 
where I was, you know, I was a little afraid of, you know, chickens in my life. Yeah. Because my grandmother, she chopped the chicken's head off and the chicken came running after me, but he, he didn't have a head <laughs> and I'm running. But I, but my grandma said, stop running, stop running. He, he, he can sense, you know, how can he sense anything? And he's dead. So he, yeah, he freaked me out. And so when it was time to do the whole chicken scene, I was like, I didn't want, I didn't let anybody know I was scared. Right. I didn't tell anybody. I just right. said, okay, this is, I got to overcome this fear. <laughs> and I'm going to just grab this chicken and just get it over with. Oh my gosh. Well, and I guess Dee had her own grandmother connection to this movie too, right? Did she show you some journal entries from her grandmother's diary? Yeah, she had a full booklet with pictures of, of you could tell they was her ancestors. They all looked just like her. Right? Mm. And she gave us music that her ancestors listened to. So it, like she was really digging in mm-hmm. when it came to, came to bringing these characters to life. Well, to, to let people know how seriously you took this acting challenge, you went off and started working with an acting coach to prep, right? I mean, yes. who was that and what were what was the value of that for you ahead of this? Tasha Smith, she's an actress herself, but she's one of the most amazing and one of the most amazing acting coaches. Mm-hmm. And when I got the script, you know, after I read the script, I it was such a huge undertaking in a huge role, I said, I got I need help. <laughs> so, you know, I, I called Tasha. She's actually my friend, too. So mm-hmm. I called Tasha. You know, I, I didn't even file yet, but mm-hmm. I was going through all yeah. my hell. And mm-hmm. I would come to her house crying, and she would say, that's fine that you're crying, but you need to give everything to Florence. <laughs> she didn't She didn't pity me. Right. No matter how much I was kicking and screaming and crying because she was my friend. I wanted her to be my friend. She didn't, right. she didn't, she wasn't even being my friend. She right. was being my acting coach. I was mad at her about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was, yeah. it, was it was useful a, to channel that, right? Absolutely. It was all worth it. The other thing that I think was a bit of a challenge was that D said, from what I understand very early on, I don't want to see any of Mary J. Blige in this character. What does that mean to you? What did that, how did you understand that? I mean, it was helpful, but you know, in the end, but in the beginning, I was like, mm. <laughs> because what does she mean? How do you get rid of me? I've been around for yes. <laughs> I've been yeah. around for a minute. <laughs> but what she meant was, you have to shed the things that you hold on to to keep you feeling confident, like lashes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I I needed to know that you know Florence can have some lashes, or <laughs> you know, Florence. You know, I don't want Florence to have kinky texture hair. Can she be like a pretty? Can she get like a texturizer? Can she get like a, a wavy lace front? Can she just be beautiful? D. Reese was like, no, I want all nappy edges, and I want them to be your nappy edges. And I was like, oh, oh man, <laughs> she took me through it. But once I gave everything to Florence, Florence gave me some new confidence because I didn't even know that I was beautiful on my own. Then the world didn't fall apart when you just were there as yourself, right? No, I, Florence was getting hit on. People, people, <laughs> people were just whistling. <laughs> Looking. That's pretty, that is a confidence booster. Yes, it is. Nice. Well, so you head down to New Orleans, I think it was for 28 days last summer, or two, it was summer 2016. What was that shoot itself actually like? It's not not mm. the most fun place to be in the summer, right? Man, it was hot. <laughs> it was super duper hot. There were mosquitoes and like gangs and packs just just destroying us. <laughs> it was it would rain real real hard and and the mud would become real. <laughs> and you know, we had to wear rain boots because the mud would just suck you down. 
and it was just the mud was a, a character in yeah. the movie because it was everywhere we had we went home with it. we had to shower it off and then come back and get it on us again but it, it was it was helpful though mm-hmm. it was helpful it kept us in character for you was there one scene that was harder than the others to do the one that maybe you were least looking forward to doing just because you knew it was going to be a challenge the barn scene was a lot that's the scene where Florence finds her, her son strung up mm-hmm. and almost murdered with his tongue cut out his mouth and his genitals and everything they just ex- just exposed him and just to try to destroy him. She finds him like that in the barn. And the Ku Klux Klan had did this to him. That was hard because it felt like at that moment, we were all living whatever our ancestors lived because it was really real to, you know, to see him like that. I mean, although we were acting, all the actors were so amazing. It At times we forgot, we you know, we were all acting. It was like, you know, to find my son like that. And I was Florence, so, you know, to find my kid like that, it was... I, I thought about my own mother. You know, what would she do if she saw me like that? And mm-hmm. so that was that was really, really hard. When did you see the film for the first time? I saw the film for the first time at Sundance. It was the uh, that premiere. Yeah. What was that like? I cried so hard. I cried so hard because the movie, it just looked so beautiful. The colors, it just looked really like we were in it. Mm-hmm. And I cried because, especially at the end, I cried at the end. I cried during the shooting, the whole movie, because we were all a part of something so very important. What did you make of the fact that actually a lot of people didn't even realize you were in the movie until the credits? <laughs> I was happy to yeah, hear that. Yeah, yeah. I was happy to That's hear a that compliment. people were looking for me. <laughs> yeah, right. I say, well, good. Mission accomplished. Exactly. And then after you saw that cut, I guess it was only after you saw that cut at Sundance that you decided you might want to make a musical contribution to the movie as well? Well, yeah, I was waiting. I was just waiting. <laughs> I was just waiting for someone to ask me. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And now they were, you know, they had needed something over the credits, right? Yeah, I mean. How did how did you come up with Mighty River to fill that void? Well, I watched, I watched the film and I wrote a whole bunch of words and things down that I felt move me in the movie. And then I went to Raphael and I, I told him what I, how I felt about it. Raphael and, um, Sadiq. Yeah, Raphael Sadiq. Yep. And I just think that for me, there was so much mud, which represented negativity, that something needed to come through and wash it up and clean it up. And I think that was love that represented the mighty river. Mm-hmm. And so that's what me and, me and Raphael that's what I took away mm-hmm. from it, and that's what we both, you know, came up with because the mud was this just was it was all over us yeah. all the time. <laughs> it, like there was days it was like we still had mud on us, right. so so it was ne- it's like negativity now. It's negativity all the time, all the time, all the time. So what's going to be the mighty river to come through now mm-hmm. in this world? It's love. Love is the only thing that's going to fix it. This is we have an opportunity right now to. Learn how to love each other and pray for our enemies. Well, do you think that in a way that makes this movie as important as ever now in 2017 Trump's America, where we're having racial issues that people thought were a thing of the past, you know, talk about the Ku Klux Klan. Who the hell would have thought they'd be back in the way that they are and that there are people who welcome it? It's crazy. Yeah, this movie is extremely important right now. I hope that it starts the conversations that need to be had. And like I said, it's an opportunity. This is so much darkness and negativity. 
that there's an opportunity here. <laughs> What's mm-hmm. the opportunity for us to keep talking about the darkness and negativity or for us to learn something? What do we learn? I mean, I, I, when you say love, people are like, oh, love is cliche. No, love is a very powerful thing right now. It's always been a powerful thing. But now it doesn't look like such a cliche. We need it. We need it. Totally. A few weeks ago, you, I guess, get a call at a ridiculously early hour of the morning when people probably normally would not dare to call you. And you learned that you got not one, but two Golden Globe nominations, one for acting, one for singing. You're only the seventh person in history to ever achieve. How did you process that? Man, I'm... <laughs> well, in the morning, that's my time that I spend, my spiritual time, my time with God. So I'm already thanking God. And then my phone rings and then Amanda's screaming, <laughs> Mary, you got nominated for the Best Supporting Actress. And then she calls back and she said, and the song got nominated too. <laughs> and so I'm just so grateful and I'm just praising God and I'm just thanking him and thanking him because this, it just, it's beautiful. Last few things here, just big picture stuff. How do you follow Mudbound? Is there going to be more acting? If there is going to be more acting, is it going to be more dramatic stuff? Or are you looking to do other things? Or do you like the drama? I mean, so where are you going with acting next? I'm definitely going to do some more acting. And it'll probably be a lot more drama. Mm-hmm. You like the, the drama, huh? Yeah. Even though no no more drama. But here we are. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> but definitely some more drama. And if something else comes that I can handle, then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go for it. Today, when you're listening to music and you hear some of the other top singers that have come up behind you in this, who reminds you most of yourself? Where do you see your influence the most? Because it's out there. Yeah, I see my influences in all the chicks. I mean, yeah. they, I mean, from the very beginning, there's so many that have come and gone. Mm-hmm. And there's so many now mm-hmm. that are still, you know, influenced by Mary J. Blige. I'm very, very happy, very proud to still be inspiring women. Is there somebody who you're personally is, is your favorite of the ones that are sort of the the next generation of Mary J. Blige type artists? I, I love them all. All right. That's, yeah. a, that's a good safe answer. <laughs> yeah. Last question. If you hadn't made that tape at the mall and wound up with a career in music, which led to this career in film as well, where would you be today? I don't know. I'd probably be Ted. I don't know. Seriously, honestly, I'm not sure if it would be a good thing. But you're, you're happy with how it's worked out. Yes, I'm ex- extremely happy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.